Hello, hello, and we're back with part two of Me Too, Misogyny, and Healthy Masculinity, Love in the Era of Me Too and Misogyny. I'm Crystal Castro, and I'm co-hosting with Julian Cook, and we're going to ask our panelists to reintroduce themselves. Start with you, Tim. My name is Tim Green. I graduate from BU in May with a film and television degree, and while I was in undergrad, I did a lot of student leadership stuff, including uh, being involved with the Sexual Assault Response and Prevention Response and Prevention Center on campus, which we refer to as SARP. I'm Sigourney Cook, uh, originally from Chicago, graduate of Launch School of Music of Bard College with Masters in Opera Performance. Undergrad, I went to Lawrence University in Wisconsin, um, studied vocal performance and philosophy. And I am also an educator, uh, currently teaching performing arts for ages, well, grades six through eight. Tough time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're all uh, holding you in our prayers because <laughs> you need it. Hello everyone, I'm Jonathan Allen. I am from Texas, went to Grambling State University for undergraduate school and to Southern Methodist University for my Master's in Theological Studies. I'm now a second year student at Boston University School of Law and a fellow at Harvard, Harvard Law's um, Charles Hampton Institute for Race and Justice. I'm Elise Best Washington. I am from Tacoma, Washington. I went to Gonzaga University for my undergrad where I studied sociology and religious studies. And then I came to Boston University School of Theology to do my Master of Divinity here. And now I work as a chaplain resident at Mass General Hospital. Hi, everyone. My name is Abel Kano. I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts, and grew up in Indiana and Hawaii. My background is I'm Dominican-American, and my background is as a community organizer. I started in high school here in Boston, uh, went on to organize in the Latino community, eventually in electoral politics, and I graduated from UMass Boston in sociology and communications. Now I lead an organization called The Arc of Change, and we are a leadership training organization. Well, you know that they love you. <laughs> so uh, we're going to jump right back in. And this, and this first question really is geared toward you, Jonathan, but I want to hear from more people. This is a big question, so you're going to need some help from, from some buddies, so hopefully the panel will help you out. Uh, it, it's a big question because uh, I want to talk about the, 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 the idea of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement within the broader legacy of the American story. So, so here we are, you're, you're, you're a legal scholar, but you're also a black, a black man. And I, I, I'm really interested in hearing you speak about the significance of legality and due process in dealing with sexual harassment. In this sense, how do we deal with sexual harassment in the context of the American story, which is one that includes a racial history and memory in which black men in particular have been constantly depicted as violent, uh, sexually deviant, and at, and at times rapacious. I, I want to hear you speak to that, but I also want to hear Sigourney uh, join in as a teacher, chime in here too. In other words, what I'm asking you to do is, is to answer this for me. What does Me Too and Time's Up say to little black boys and girls who are the unfortunate heirs of these images that are emblazoned on the diseased American imagination? And if you read somebody say, like Khalil Gibran Muhammad's condemnation of blackness, you get a very real sense of how these notions of black men in particular as sexually deviant come to be. How do we handle that legacy 
in a Me Too moment. I, I want to give you, I want to concretize that a little more. I have an aunt, uh, and I guess these would be my cousins, who are now college-aged. They're two wonderful, beautiful, black, young brothers. They are at predominantly white schools, though. And a, a couple of weeks ago, she said something to me that was extremely moving, and that took me back to my own journey. She said, I am afraid for my two black young men who do identify as heterosexual and who by, by and large will have to at some point, if they have romantic relationships on their college campus, probably will have them at some point with a white woman. How do we do, how do, we do interracial relationships? How do we talk about this at all uh, with that larger sort of history of, 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 uh, of these images of sexual deviance on, on behalf of I, I think that for this particular question, we have to ask ourselves, okay, due process, Yes. right? Due process is this idea that the court, I can't be taken or found guilty without having first a proper investigation and court proceeding to find me guilty. Sure. And that's kind of the black letter idea of due process, but then there's this other idea that I think is important for this conversation, and that is the public opinion and society due process. Yes. That that is very different from the legal process and its encounter, but the fact that when someone is accused of sexual harassment, the public has already taken you through your trial, so to speak, yeah. and there's a reputation and an image that is cast instantly. Um, and that is of concern, but I do think in terms of or in line with the American story, we are reminded of the racial history that exists in this country and that even around sexual harassment, there are certain people who are going to experience the procedural due process in a different way sure. than some others. And that may even remind us about mass incarceration and sexual harassment is certainly one of those areas where you can be found criminally unlawful or, or guilty and, and be sentenced to jail. And we have a pattern in this country that where there are filters for or pipelines for putting black and brown people in jail, it is used. There are less white men who, who are instantly taken to jail or quickly taken to jail because of sexual harassment than black and brown folk um, who are. And I think that is something that we must think about um, in the context. Due process, while it is intended to be fair, the question is, is it a necessary evil? I, it, it, yeah. Is it truly uh, something that, that we need as a society, which was the question you were asking. Sure. And I think while there is a measure of fairness and equality that due process is supposed to yield, its application doesn't always yield fairness. Um, and, and due process, and I think that's, that's critical for us to think about in the context of the American story. I think, of the, I think of the story, Jonathan, and I hope others will chime in. I think of the story of the young black boy, little black, actually little black boy, we should say, a few, maybe about two years ago, who told his teacher, who was a white woman, that she was pretty, mm -hmm. and he was suspended from school. Mm -hmm. So the question for me mm -hmm. is, do, are, are, are uh, he was suspended uh, under the guise of sexual harassment, mm -hmm. are black children safe in a Me Too moment? 
I don't think black children had ever been safe. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's any particular moment that has made us any more unsafe than another. I think that black folk have not been safe since we were brought over from Africa into the, into this land. So I don't think that um, we are safe. I think certainly there there's in a particular moment that exacerbates a situation or shines spotlight on it, I think there is room for black and brown people to be exploited um, through, um, through this movement in terms of being funneled into the criminal law system. Yeah. Um, um, that, that is um, certainly um, a cause for concern um, for our black and brown people. But I, I do think that we, um, the movement is necessary. Sure. And we have to figure out how to best prepare our communities and our generation to deal um, with these paradigms and to deal with each other so that we can progress as a more respectful society. Elise, you're a woman, so, so we, did, we have pink uh, pussy hats being put on a statue of Harriet Tubman <laughs> in Harlem. Uh, once again, are, we, are black children, black women, black men less safe uh, in a Me Too moment? I would um, side with Jonathan on that, that we have never been safe. And I think that's clear. When you were talking about um, due process, I was thinking about, I don't remember the, the, the officer's name, but it was a couple years ago, a white Oklahoma police officer assaulted and raped a number of black women um, and then used some of their cases. They had records. They used, he used some of their records to keep them, to silence them. And then when he was brought to court, he got some 112 years sentenced to prison, but I couldn't get over the shock that he had on his face. Like, how could you? I believe he fainted when the verdict when the, when the verdict was read. He was. You know, I don't even know if I got that far because yeah. I was looking at the facial. <laughs> yeah. The facial expression was said enough that he didn't expect that he should go to prison for having raped and, and assaulted. I don't even know how many black women that that came forward it was over a dozen. that were supported and came forward, but he raped them and expected to go free as someone who was supposed to be protecting our, um, our community. And I mean, we can go back in, in time, yeah, we yeah. can revisit slavery, we can talk about all this history, but that was something that really stuck out to me because it's recorded, his face, you know? Yeah. Abel, what do you, what, do you, what do you tell your Dominican son? What do you tell him about this moment? You know, uh, I, I also agree with this, with this uh, idea of being unsafe. And the example you gave of a young uh, boy of color uh, giving a compliment that had consequences reminded me of something that's not exactly the same but connected uh, to larger moments of organizing of civil rights in the civil rights movement. Sure. And I see that this moment is part of a larger set of moments in the progressive movement as it relates to inter intersectional issues of class, gender, and race. And we're fighting these fights, and this is connected. It reminded me of Emmett Till. Uh, the story as I understand it, he complimented or flirted with a white woman outside of a store, four days later was abducted, murdered, and um, you know, the folks who did it got away. And so I think that, that a moment like that reminds me that the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King, for example, didn't call it the, the, the civil rights movement, he called it the freedom movement, the freedom now movement. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, these, thing, these moments, like moments like the Me Too hashtag, are opportunities from the perspective of an organizer. As I understand it, the founder of, uh, of the Me Too hashtag, uh, was it Tarana Burke, right. is an organizer. Right. 
And it was started 10 years before this caught fire. Absolutely. And so the thing that I think about as an organizer, when you see hashtag in social media, it's great because it raises awareness, but it on its own is insufficient because what's required is structure uh, and organization and people coming together in ways to strategize together about how to real, make real change on the ground. And so part of what I ask myself is, is the awareness that's being generated now, how is it translating to action on the ground for women and girls who are being affected by this? How is it translating to action on the ground for uh, young men who are being affected by this or need to take a, a bigger role in organizing around this to change some of the toxic masculine behaviors that are affecting the women and girls who are, who are um, hashtagging me too? So I, I guess that's part of my question. I see it as part of a larger movement and things like uh, Occupy, for example, which caught fire as a, as a hashtag, but needed action on the ground. Things like Black Lives Matter, which is also a hashtag, but requires action on the ground. Indivisible is a good example of a, of a movement or uh, something that gained a lot of awareness, but had organizational structure in states across the country, helping to facilitate as a movement, uh, groups getting together of four and five or more to form teams and to start taking action in their own community. So there are examples out there of, of, of what it looks like to get into action, but I'm, I'm curious about what that looks like in this case. And movements that may in fact need a level of correction, right? No movement is a perfect movement. That's they exactly may, right. in fact need a level of correction. And, I, and for those who don't know the story of Emmett Till, I, I wanna, that, 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 that's a very salient point that you've made. Of course, we found out a few years ago, Emmett Till is this black young man, 14 years old. He is a South Side, lives on the South Side of Chicago, is, uh, has the experience that most of us who grew up on the South Side of Chicago have, because our folks are from Mississippi, of being sent down South for the summer, and uh, has an interaction with a woman in Money, Mississippi by the name of Carolyn Bryant, and turns up several days later in the Tallahatchie River after having been terribly abused. It's a story that if you are a man of color, you never forget the first time it's told mm -hmm. because of just how, and I think women too, but, but I think men in particular because of just how graphic the story is often told and what it says to you uh, as a young man about the way you perce you're perceived sexually. I, I, I also want to mention that Carolyn Bryant, this is an important point and it gets to what we're talking about, who was his accuser uh, just maybe a year ago confessed that the story was, in, was, in a, was a lie entirely, and, and that this image, uh, that, that Emmett Till never ever whistled at her or anything like that, and that his mother had in fact been accurate, that he had a speech impediment and could not collect his words and made a sort of whistling sound in the process of trying to collect his words. But I think that's a perfect the actions of a little boy who tells his white teacher that she's pretty. And I think it goes to your point earlier, um, Julian, as we talked about how black men have historically um, been seen and depicted um, as deviant, as aggressive, um, as, some, as a threat. And in, in, indeed, it, it makes me even think about, as you talk about Emmett Till and his, what would be deemed an innate criminality, right. um, un, unworthy of being um, re received or deemed truthful, yes. um, and, and due process was evaded. It, he did not receive due process. But it, in terms of due process, I'm also reminded of Reese Taylor, yes. um, who, as another flip and from another perspective, 
we must also talk about our women who are not taken seriously when they do say that they have been sexually assaulted. Reese Taylor was um, kidnapped in 1944 in Alabama by white men. They got out of a truck and then took her down the way and raped her and then said that she was a prostitute and that she was lying and, and, and then told police, the sheriff, that in fact it did happen and he didn't and they didn't believe him and and that is something we must be talking about how often um, what kind of culture have we created in which people who are sexually harassed and sexually assaulted are now ashamed to even say it because we, we we've made certain people feel as if they won't even be heard or believed Reese Taylor that's getting a lot of press right now that mm -hmm. story is being told a lot more now Scott Sparrow Boys I mean the story just goes I mean in the civil rights movement as we speak about it it was it, it was Rosa Parks who then came and interviewed Reese Taylor and that story went on to propel what the Montgomery bus boycotts and the civil rights movement as we declare today so sexual harassment sexual assault rape um, in essentially was a case that the NWC ACP deemed as being the perfect victim choice for respectability po politics, sure. and they said this is the case that's going to make some stuff pop off, and they mm. chose that case, took it serious, and ran with it, and had they not done that, we, we wouldn't, I don't know what we'd be talking about in terms of the civil rights movement. So in sure many respects, Ida B. Wells is all about uh, a Me Too moment as well, mm -hmm. telling, trying to get these exactly. people to tell the story of why most many of these black men were lynched. Exactly. Much of that had to do with being accused of sexual violence against exactly. white women. Exactly. So thank you so much. Did you have a point, Abel? Did you? No. Okay. I want to turn to Sigourney. Sigourney, what are you are you concerned? As you're you're a teacher, you're actually working with these students. Are you concerned about the ramifications? of Me Too and how uh, your students of color, you're at a, a school that has a large number, predominantly, right, mm -hmm. students, students of color, uh, are you concerned about how your students of color are interacting with the legacy of Me Too thus far? I'm concerned for their well-being in general. Um, unfortunately, where we've come to in education, um, we're more focused on academics solely and um, testing and the STEM idea of education and we neglect to to nurture the person and that's what I try to instill in my 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 kids and I have to say I neglect to say I teach fifth through eighth grade not just sixth through eighth grade that was a mistake it's been a long day you lost um, class. <laughs> <laughs> but those are baby scholars but they also I mean they're so exposed to to everything it's too too young and I'm just concerned for their well-being in general because they don't have an outlet. They, we, there's no sexual, sex education. Uh, physical education is very limited. Uh, gym class, that kind of stuff, where you have those conversations. So me and, my, uh, um, and the physical education teacher, we try to implement personal skills, um, communication, different forms of communication, silent communication, which is very powerful. A look at somebody, looking at somebody the wrong way is can make or break a, a situation, Absolutely. an experience. Um, and while I'm teaching performing arts, I, I always try to focus on um, their, their, their person. You know, what does it mean to speak to somebody in a certain way? Um, what does it mean to um, give somebody a certain look? What is your body language saying to somebody? Are you threatening somebody? Are you, you know, um, things like that. And in the Me Too era, um, I, I guess, I guess it doesn't, 
it, I'm not. I don't specifically uh, think that their well-being is. Um, I I think I I try to not focus on sexual orientation and such things like that because in this day and age, our kids are experimental and they don't have um, so many confines on who they like, what they look like. You know, they don't think like a lot of us think and. Thankfully, that's that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I I get concerned about putting it into context and under and have, having them to understand that yes, you grew up in a, in a I guess a liberal type of world, and you had your first president. For some of you, was a black president, you know. Um, but there is a long history of mm-hmm. oppression, a long history of sexual um, objectification of male and female um, and that with among different races and it's very difficult so that's the stuff I struggle with in this era with my children um, and they are my children I have to take responsibility for them uh, I didn't birth them but they're in my care so that's that's my issue that's what I deal with on a daily basis so I won't get to my lesson plan all the time, and I don't care um, because I see if I see a kid saying something negative to another kid or approaching another kid the wrong way because they made they for saying things like oh you're fruit this is a, there's a word they use you're fruit um, speaking about their sexual orientation or something like that or. Um, there's always this boys versus girl thing. I, I will intervene and we will have this discussion because you cannot, I, I can't be a teacher. I cannot educate you solely on how well you write an essay if you don't know who you are when you walk out of this room. So that's, that's where I am. Seems like we're missing a whole generation if Absolutely. we're really going to have a Me Too conversation. Absolutely. I want to come to you, Elise, and then we want to bounce on to, uh, I just wanted to um, acknowledge what Sigourney said, which is that we have to take responsibility for our kids, and at the same time, they need to have a sense of their personhood and ownership of their own bodies. Kids are one of our most vulnerable populations. Um, If we talk about men and women, we have this power dynamic here. When we talk about race, another power dynamic. And then kids, who have very little power, um, need to have an idea of who they are and have control of themselves. So I love that you're talking about um, sex education classes. It's my favorite thing, and I think that they should always be offered um, in church contexts and schools so that kids are learning about consent at an early age, so that they're learning how to interact with one another and paying attention to nonverbals like Sigourney had mentioned. Um, because it's not just talking that, that that's consent, but it's also acknowledging the way someone's body language is um, is saying whether I want to hear or not. And that changes, it's constant. You're always checking on consent. So I thought that was a very powerful comment to talk about our children and how vulnerable they really are. Absolutely, so I wanna take this over to healthy masculinity. Um, Abel, you were talking about who you're a community organizer and um, Tim, feel free to jump in because I know that you're a sexual assault counselor so you probably deal with this a lot. Um, but how can we get men to adopt a more healthy masculinity as opposed to the toxic one that most tend to adopt? Well, I, I mean, I think it starts with 
it starts with you know your teachers and your parents and like the people you surround yourself with it's just something that kind of has to start from the ground up i guess to not be like shamed for liking a certain thing or um to not be shamed for liking to like wear a certain thing or express yourself a certain way um and just anytime it, I think I think there's a lot of kind of like micro things that add up to it, and um, it's something that still, when you're you know in your 20s, you can still like perpetuate like gender norms or gender stereotypes with people that you're very close with, and you might think, oh, like they won't take it the wrong way, or like we're just joking around or something like that. I think that that's something um, with all these topics that we've talked about today is something that has to you have to stay present in realizing that you have to be willing to call your friends out mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to like call your family members out um and actually excuse me i'd say call in uh which is another thing that we talked a lot about with sarp whereas like if you're calling someone out they immediately go on the defensive and there is there is a place for calling people out for sure but calling people in is really when you're gonna start uh like you're saying like oh like why did you say that you know, just like, just come from like a place of curiosity or something like that. And then you can still have a conversation and then people feel comfortable with being wrong. Um, yeah, so I, what, what would you add to that, Abel? I, I think what's coming up for me is that so much of, as I understand it, healthy masculinity or masculinity is it in itself uh, isn't necessarily good or bad, right. uh, but toxic masculinity is specifically the most toxic uh, impacts of what it of what masculinity has to offer. So it's like specifically about the most negative consequences of how we behave with one another, and I think it's I think that's important to say because um, as a as a man, I had to really look at myself and see if is is my masculinity as a whole bad? Is it evil? Is it wrong? Right. Or not? And if there's something that isn't evil or wrong or bad about it, then what, what are those things? And what does it actually look like to practice healthy masculinity in relationship with others? And so I think that process of dialogue and questioning is really important because in a sense, we need to, we need to understand that we're renegotiating what it looks like to practice uh, healthy masculinity, not in a bubble, not in a silo, but in relationship with the people that we care about, the people we interact with on a daily basis. And from my perspective as an organizer, so much of um, understanding, uh, healing, transformation comes for how we from being in community with others and from thinking really thoughtfully about how do we build relationships that are meaningful, how do we express our values and communicate those intentionally. Sure. And the truth is that I think so many of our values uh, we learned uh, you know, unconsciously growing up, uh, seeing the kind of family dynamics we had or being in communities um, that practice certain kinds of masculinity, and then we adopt those things. And so what does it look like to be intentional about deciding what, how you want to show up in the world, about deciding what kind of values you want to practice as it relates to other people? And I think that process is one that um, is most effectively done with others. It's very difficult to do that work all by yourself in the mirror, but how do you create spaces that are brave uh, we often talk about safe spaces, but uh, I, I really prefer to call it brave spaces because we can't guarantee safety, but we can certainly ensure that we're creating conditions in which we can practice courage together. And so the work of like actually practicing leadership, bringing people together, uh, creating spaces where people can have the kind of dialogue that you were talking about cultivating in your classrooms. And so that's why part of the question for me is also if we're doing, if we've got a moment here 
in which the awareness is really heightened because of the hashtag MeToo campaign, then how do we translate that to people actually coming together in person and becoming vulnerable, becoming open, talking about how they're experiencing these things and beginning to shift in a way that's not just healthy for some, but healthy for, for all? Let me give a, an, an, uh, an example. I am currently working with a few other young men in the Boston area, and Abel, please, let's talk after this and, and, get on, and you get on board as well. We are working to bring together black men in, in Boston to have a very candid conversation across generations about misogyny, about sexual harassment, about masculinity, and working in the community to redefine what we think being a man is and what masculinity means to us and what those standards look like and sitting with women before we go into that kind of setting to be educated and be aware of you all's experiences so that we can go to that meeting with these men having been um, drenched in experiences to reflect on with them and get their feedback on and walk through kind of a communal development or I would say reimagination of the man, reimagination um, of respect, reimagination of masculinity as well. So those who are interested in being a part, let's, let's talk and let's do this. We have to do it, as Tim said, from the ground up, for real. And I think uh, with, with this topic, I something I find myself chewing on a lot is uh, the non-binary perspective as well, because I saw a tweet once um, that said that like cis straight men are often applauded for the for adopting the same aesthetics that non-binary and, and femme people are, you know, afraid to to absolutely you know be themselves out in the world or express themselves in a certain way. And I think about that a lot because. Um, like I'll wear nail polish sometimes and like generally I'm applauded for that like oh Tim like you're you're a straight guy and you're wearing nail polish like really smashing you know <laughs> and so that, as I said that's something I still chew on a lot so I'm not sure I you know really have a great uh, kind of wrap up um, thought on that but um, I think that it's important that when you're thinking about how you are redefining masculinity for yourself that you also think about how you are um, responding to different types of masculinity or femininity from other people. Um, yeah, and so, so I, I, I just say that in when you are trying to think of how you can do something, um, think about supporting others in doing what's, you know, doing them. Abel, do you want to add a last comment? Yes, I just wanted to emphasize that I think this is a real opportunity to do something meaningful, not alone, but together. And the Women's March is a phenomenal example of what kind of energy is created when people are asked to show up in solidarity. And so what's the opportunity here? Is it an opportunity to change some kind of policy? Is it an opportunity to bring people together to form some kind of stronger community? Like, what is the thing that we can begin doing together in solidarity so that, you know, although it's powerful to go home as individuals and practice our own form of activism, what, what would it look like for us to do something big, meaningful, and, uh, and empowering together? Thank you so much. And at this time, we're gonna ask um, a few questions of our audience. Uh, let's give our panelists a round of applause. Uh, 
All right, if there's anyone who would like to ask a question, feel free to raise your hand and then come on up here. I'll hand you the mic and you can ask what you want of either any specific panelist or of the group as a whole. Okay, sure. <laughs> Thank you for taking my question. I just want to share an anecdote to break the liberal bubble a little bit because it was a pointy moment for me and something I'm struggling with. So around the time of the Women's March, I found myself through a friend of a friend at a barbecue in Quincy, Mass., blue-collar town with a blue-collar family, and I saw women speaking satirically, not satirically, with sarcasm about the Women's March, as if all these women who had mobilized were overreacting or it wasn't really serious and people just need to get on with their lives and work. And I was honestly taken aback that even amongst women, who I know have been catcalled, I know have been harassed to some degree, they didn't seem like there was an existential problem here, that this is kind of the way things go, and we're better off if we just really tend to our work and move forward. And so I've been thinking about this whenever we talk about Me Too, and I have no idea uh, how to respond to it, and I felt weird being the man trying to convince women of the merit of the Women's March. So that's my, my story for you all. If any of you want to comment, that'd be wonderful. I, I do think that injustice, I do think that disrespect, I do think that a thing like sexual harassment can be normalized. I, I do think that we, we've created a culture of this. And so there are people, just like there are people who would say, stop fighting for LGBT rights, stop fighting for civil rights, you would never get it anyway, so we might as well just get used to the way that things are. I think that exists when we've allowed something, we've established a precedent. America loves precedent. Um, and when we've established a precedent and we believe that we, we follow things the way they've always been, um, that's the kind of country we have. We're really, really stuck on doing things the way we've always done them. Um, and I think the hashtag Me Too um, moment and this mobilization is an example when there are a group and segment of people who say, but no, we are reimagining the democracy. We are reimagining how our society engages with one another. Can I say, um, I don't by any means condone any of these oppressive behaviors um, among any type of, any person, any walk of life. I have to say that there are times when I'm leery about marches, women's marches, and big groups of people, um, a lot of them uh, people who don't directly experience these things, marching for other people. Well, I think that is a, an, a step toward change. People who don't, like men, who are some, I won't say, let me not generalize, let me track back. Men being involved in women's marches, I think that's, an, or women's issues uh, in general, that is important because you don't experience those things as men. However, as a black woman, marches with big groups of people um, that are sometimes catapulted by some kind of pop culture or a hashtag um, or a celebrity that made a hashtag popular instead of um, creating real change or people doing real work and it benefiting people who are in the limelight already um, or or uh, more rapidly benefiting them. I I do have reserve, and uh, I am hesitant to to uh, jump on board because 
What does that look like? I think Elise said something about it. What does that look like for everyday women? How, what, what changes made for them um, as a result of that, it, as a result from these big overblown marches? And as a woman of color, you probably have double issue with Exactly, right? I'm a black woman, you know, I mean. Leading the conversation, exactly. often don't look like Or don't look like me, have never experienced these things, will never experience these things. And here's a big march on TV, thousands of millions of people coming together. That's great, what happens next? Yeah, and I think, I think um, that there's, it's probably overall a positive thing that there is now cultural capital involved in saying that you went to these marches and posting an Instagram from the march or, or doing you know, the, the latest hashtag like you were talking about. But um, you know, Louis C.K. and Aziz Ansari very much positioned themselves as feminist men, mm -hmm. uh, and they benefited from that um, hugely. Aziz Ansari in particular. Uh, benefited from that hugely. Um, and that's not to say that they had like this complex of, oh, I'm going to you know position myself this way and then I'm going to use that and actually still be a predator. But it, I think it's a good thing to think about that these people who probably believe that they were, that they are what they, you know, pur purported to be, um, can still be a part of the problem. And so if you're thinking about yourself as someone who is, who I am an ally. Uh, I hear the thing I hear a lot that's very helpful to me is that uh, allyship is not like being an ally is not a noun; it's a verb. And so you can't just say I'm a feminist and then you're a feminist. You can't just go to a march and say now I am all of these principles. And I think the response to your question also de depends on who you're who you're saying said what they said, mm -hmm. uh, because different women are impacted differently by certain issues. And for some, it might be less of a concern than others. Yeah. And so it depends on who that person yeah. was. And that is my concern. When, the, when people were talking about the Women's March, I was thinking, I'm not going. Because who's centered in this march? Who is going to benefit from it? I mean, even when you talk about the pink pussy hat that's put on uh, Harriet Tubman, even the color of the, the hat, who, who does that reflect? Because not all women have pink pussies. Some people have purple. Some people have darker colors. So who's really at the center of this conversation? Um, and why should we risk being in these unsafe places? Because a march is also a place where you can experience sexual assault. And I would never want to be in the middle of, of that. Um, so yeah, how much are, and how deep are you willing to go beyond that march, I think Tim was talking yes, about exactly. that. I think that's a really important point because one, for one, I think we have to acknowledge not everyone has the means or the opportunity to join protests such as marches, especially... Gotta, say I gotta work. Right, you've gotta work, you've got multiple jobs, you've got children in school, not everyone has access to those kinds of actions. Okay. So that's one thing, there are barriers to joining. The second is that there might be a distrust of the, the efficacy of such an action because of such a long history of taking action and not seeing, not seeing an immediate result. And so I think as an organizer, what's important for me to, to just kind of think about is that there are, there are tactics or actions that we do intended to get a particular result based on a theory of how we're gonna achieve our change. The Montgomery bus boycott was a boycott that targeted the buses financially so that they could win. 
But what happens is that if we just mobilize people to march without a really thoughtful leadership team, without a structure behind it that's doing some of the strategizing before and after every march, without actively engaging every single volunteer who shows up to, to deepen their commitment in the movement, what happens is that groups who uh, might not necessarily be completely aligned with the values and strategy of the movement begin to co-opt that energy and power that's built because they've got the organization and structure and we don't. And they may and, even capitalize. And right? they may even capitalize on it. So, you know, really being thoughtful about leadership development, about building real relationships, about engaging the energy and moving it in a targeted direction based on how we think we're going to win, you know, win change uh, specifically. And so I, I guess the question is like with the march, what, you know, where, where do we hope that will take us if we do activate hundreds, thousands, millions of people Whose attention are we trying to get? What change are we trying to achieve as a first step even? And then how do we build on that from there?